0: A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness.
1: The lilies by Mona Ashi. The lilies were sick. I was new and wifely, a first tiny garden and my favourite flower, right by the back door. They had been planted in raised beds, all self-conscious in their outsized whiteness. For weeks they seemed fine, but then I noticed a kind of injury perforations on the petals, and a black, sticky gob, the fly's excrement. I cleaned them up as best I could, but the blight returned. In the dark, with the kitchen lit, they must have peered in, their occultish, hurting faces pressed against the glass. They were hard to love back, these flowers. I gave them nothing else, spared them my gaze those poor, dazed heads. I suppose I could have pulled up their sick stems or poisoned them from the bottle, but I let them live on, beauty-drained in their altar beds.
0: Mona, where did this poem come from?
1: So uh, The Lilies uh, was a poem that I've had in my imagination for a long time, that I've held in my imagination quite a long time. The idea behind it was a memory um, of when um, I first had a garden for the first time, and which was mine. And um, I, I guess the first thing to say about the poem was the fact that it was it was one of those poems that almost floated into the first collection um small hands mm-hmm. um and some of its subject matter which sort of contains themes around beauty and death and beauty and and pity and beauty and disease mm-hmm. um are sort of themes that i've been interested in but i guess it sort of was in my notebook this are uh, these ideas were in my notebook and this memory was in my notebook so a lot of my poems i I collect in um, in notebook form, and and I sort of went back to this poem, and and I basically just sort of used it as kindling for some of the themes that I was interested in, and and the poem sort of arose from that idea of literally having a garden and trying to nurse <laughs> these these flowers and being really feeling as if I was really inept at it, and actually um, using that. Feeling to sort of discuss things around death and grief and and just living, really.
0: Yeah, so there's a really kind of shifting relationship between the speaker and the the lilies, isn't there? You know, at first it's like, oh, my favorite, but then mm. it it all goes a bit wrong, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I also remember whilst I was um, circling around some of the issues and themes in in in, in the collection, Dear Big Gods. I read this really interesting essay by um Vladimir Nabokov and it was an it was his Cornell lectures and he was talking about because I was kind of really concerned about how you write about beauty and um by complicating this idea of beauty and because I guess a lot of people say my poems are beautiful mm-hmm. um yeah. you know they're lyrical they're beautiful and 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 I think that I I understand that because they're quite lyrical, but I also feel as if, you know, there's a complicated beauty in some of the work that is sometimes not emphasized. And I guess that so I was sort of looking and searching for what, what that meant. And and I came across this really wonderful essay by Navikov where he talks about art being beauty with a tincture of pity inside of it. All beauty Ooh. has to have pity alongside of it. And, and actually, that's a really, it's a very non-Western aesthetic, mm-hmm. actually, of looking at beauty. But so I became really interested in in this idea of what that means to have beauty and pity along alongside each other. You know, alongside beauty, do you have to have this idea of, you know, the terrible or the awful? And I guess that sort of idea of those two poles, beauty, pity, um, lyric beauty, something that's beautiful, but also has... Um, you have this kind of complicated relationship with it. Um, I think that was sort of, those are the sort of ideas, I, I guess, that I was sort of sort of cycling around. In, in, and I think they sort of transmuted into the poem a little bit as well.
0: Well, I, maybe I could go a little further and say beauty, pity, and even horror. Because you've got these <laughs> yes. wonderful Gothic images, the occultish hurting faces pressed against the glass and poisoning them. From the bottle, and you know this isn't isolated. You know that you've got an awful, another really amazing poem, but also horrific about wasps in the connection. And there's this image mm. of the a little boy who's being attacked by wasps, and you described him as the wasps drizzled onto him, and that was just such a. Oh, just a horrible and and absolutely memorable image and I think Mm. when you talk yeah the beauty in your work is obvious but there's also a vein of horror isn't there
1: yeah I mean I guess that's what life is you know it um I think I'm trying to I mean that 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 poem that you refer to the wasps is about again a a memory of of my my younger brother um who who I um who I write about um I write I write I've written elegies for him Mm. because he died and and small hands is sort of concerned with that loss. But again, that was a memory and and I think that I, I guess I'm not consciously trying to write about horror or or about these issues in a kind of, you know, I'm not trying to shock the reader, put it that way. I just think it's just a really truthful way yeah. of writing about about memory. And and actually memory is really interesting because um, you know, that they we don't live our lives in a linear way. We are often you know, tripping over our memories. There are, there are like sort of emotional Uh tripwires and, and we trip over them all the time. And, and actually, so, you know, our days are, are spent looking forwards, but look and being in the present, but also a lot of it is spent looking back. And, and I guess I'm doing a lot of that, that looking back. And, and I think that some of it is wonderful and some of it is complicated and that's the most truthful way of being able to sort of translate those memories into poems, I guess. Mm. Um, And I think that's, that's basically what the poems are doing. I always think that the poem is, the poem is always wiser than its, than its (laughs) author. I think, I think the poem sort of knows what it's trying to do. Yeah. Um, it's only afterwards when you reflect back, actually you know sometimes years years later i mean this poem was written i think three three years ago uh-huh. maybe four years ago now and and I can talk about the poem in this way I mean, I was too close to it before, but i I do think that there is something about if you can get in the get out of the way of the poem, the poem sort of will discover you know discover you'll discover the poem and it, and it will illuminate some of the the parts that you might not have really consciously put put in it if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. And it, it takes a lot of trust, I think, to learn to do that, you know, not, not imposing your own will on the poem, but being open to what it's going to bring to you.
1: I think that's the hardest thing to do, Mark. I think that's the hardest thing mm. is to not impose yourself on the poem and try to find – it's really hard to find a way to um, – let the destination, let the landing be the poem where, ne- where, where the poem needs to land, as, a, as opposed to you determining that destination. You know, the poem will be what it wants to be. Um, and I think with the lilies, I, I sort of let let loose. I think you get better, at, I think, at doing that as you get more experienced as a as a writer.
0: You know, maybe as you as you say that now, I'm thinking about the lilies, and maybe on one in one way, you could say that it's a poem about somebody letting the lilies be what they want even if that means they're going to be not the the favorite flower image not the um not the instagram version of lilies
1: <laughs> i love the idea of that instagram perfect instagram lilies yeah i mean i yes um i guess circling around those those issues around beauty and and you know what What we consider is perfect beauty, as well, and loving something and wanting to love something that's perfect. But also, there is a part of that poem where I am avoiding looking at the thing that has was beautiful and is no longer beautiful. There's a lot of avoidance in that, which um, again is part of what we do when we are living, you know, and um, avoiding looking at at the truth of things, you know, things that have, things that are dying, and things that are going to leave us. which takes you back to, you know, Nabokov's lovely little pivot around beauty and pity again.
0: Yeah, and within the context of both of your collections, the reader will be aware of these themes of death and loss that that you write about more directly in other poems. And I think this is another argument for, well, <laughs> you know, we're reading the poem in isolation today, and I'm I'm saying this is the argument for reading it as part of the collection. But, you know, this is one of the great things about poetry is being able to do both, being able to zoom in and see what's in the individual poem, and then also zoom out and look at it in context. Um, and even beyond the... Your collections, a couple of poems that kept coming to mind for me while I was reading this one are, firstly, Shakespeare's Sonnet 94, where he's got the line, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And also Blake, O Rose, thou art sick. Mm. So I'm curious, were either of these poems in your mind as you were writing?
1: Gosh, yes, the Blake one, definitely. I didn't even... I didn't even think about the Shakespeare one. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um yeah, yeah. Blake was there, I think, that um I think the first line, The Lilies were sick, I just right. wanted to present to the to the reader, um, something very simple about you know, what I was looking at, the gaze. Mm. Um, I mean in a way the the poem is it, it it's it is around the gaze, but of course alongside that underneath that is all the other things that are going on in terms of lyric and rhyme and half rhyme um which I've I actually had that that, that was the hardest thing actually in this poem which was the form but um yeah I I love the idea that you picked picked up Blake <laughs> and I, I um I think it's something that I I I think you do when you read quite a lot you know um you sometimes inadvertently it's quite wonderful actually i mean i think there's a lot of a lot of um plath in this poem as well i know yes. that other people have said talked yes, about that definitely. um and actually plath is a really big pull for me mm. um to the extent that i almost feel like i couldn't read her for a long time because i felt like i was often sailing so close to those occultish sort of sensibilities yeah. <laughs> that yeah. plath would bring um and i guess um I sort of, I let myself sort of, you know, I let myself touch base with Plath again in this poem. I think it's probably my Plathiest poem. Um, because I think that, um, you know, you read somebody in your 20s and 30s and they sort of become part of your, you know, a part of, you know, your body and your 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 DNA, you know. And even if you don't touch base with them, Angela Carter is another writer actually I who mm. I kind of, I feel I almost feel as if I can't read her anymore because she's such a big pole. Yeah. <laughs> so but I think this poem is is sort of um in touch with Blake and in touch with 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 Plath too, in terms of its sort of sensibility and also its themes. And and I I kind of want to embrace that in that po- in the poem actually. It's not something that I, I shy away from. I think it's something that I wholeheartedly kind of accept and love about you know that that, that's what happens you read a lot and then those little echoes are in in the work you know which which you've seen which is really lovely
0: well I think this is a it's obviously a strength in your work and to me it's one of the great pleasures of poetry that you can if you're a poet you can be having a conversation through the work with Blake with Plath uh, for instance and and I think that can only um, you know, make us step up to the plate, you know, if you're in the room with people like that. Um, and as a reader as well, I often think it's a bit like, through these little signals like that first line and echoes, it's as though we can eavesdrop on the conversation between poets, even if it's across time.
1: Yes, of course. I mean, we don't write our poems in a vacuum. We We have a context and there are ghosts of other writers in the room when we are writing. And I love that. I love the idea of that seepage, you know, that that that, uh, that we're very porous to those voices that um, become part of our work. Um, I, I guess w- when you are starting out as a writer, I think there's a real resistance actually to sort of read too much of a poet that you love because you're worried that you might be... Um, writing a pastiche of their poem or being you know writing too closely um but I I think as long as long as you read widely I think it's never it's never an issue and I think you become more confident with sort of your own I hate to say your own voice actually because I don't like the idea of that but I I think that every voice every poem has its sort of own voice and the lilies have a voice here and um I think in the end you know they are transmuted from lilies into into sort of creatures, um, I mean, in the end, they're almost like like babies. I mean, there is a there's a line about, and I could have used a different different word um, when I refer to poisoning them from the bottle. It feels as if there is a, they they they're transmuting into to something that's a bit more creaturely, and yeah. So, so those those are things where the the, the poem has led me to to this other other territory in a kind of, you know, it's taken me by the hand and taken me to this other place. And I guess, so that's where the poem, that's what I love about poetry because you can travel, you can travel miles and miles and miles with with a poem and you can travel through time with a poem as well, (laughs) you know, um, and, and you can take, you can sort of meet the, meet the poem halfway. A, A reader can meet the poem halfway and,
0: well, you know, another place it's travelling is as you talk about them coming alive, is the day of the triffids. <laughs> Particularly the T V adaptation that was on in the eighties that scared the hell out of me when I was a teenager. You know, the flowers wanting to come in at the window.
1: Oh yes, yeah. I, I I know that text really well. I think I read it at school. Um, yeah, I mean that might have been, you know, part of the you know, it might have been an influence. I don't know. I, I just I just had this I I think the poem is, is very visual and and I wanted to I like the idea of the of these po these, these flowers, these lilies that were turning and becoming creaturely and having a life of their own and wanting to be looked at mm. because I no longer wanted them or I felt disgusted by them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this poem is actually around disgust, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 how you can become disgusted by something that's kind of kind of was beautiful and and the language as well, you know, uh, which is unusual language and quite a quite a lyric poem, um, gob and excrement. I think those are the sort of decisions I made about wanting to make sure that the reality of what we were seeing was was clear and and I could have used different language, but I sort of wanted I wanted to. to to tell the truth of the thing that now disgusted me yeah those were
0: two of the words i underlined and i've drawn a line between them because i think there's almost like a kind of force field between those two words i mean gob is just a horrible kind of street slang term and then and you know you couldn't get more basic than gob and then you've got excrement Mm -hmm. which is like the latinate term for it yeah and it's for the same thing between the two of those you've got the you know there's different ways that we've got of of talking and thinking about that side of life
1: yeah i mean i i think i think looking at the poem poem now i think that's absolutely right i think it is those two poles Mm -hmm. that it's flitting between you know um the beauty and the disgust and the pity and and i think that's I think that's what it's trying to do, and I think even in its sort of syntax, just slightly, there is a there is a sort of counterpoint between the more conventional language. The lilies were sick. Yeah, I was new and wifely. There's an expectation, I think, that I'm I'm trying to that the language that I'm trying to thwart because there's an expectation at the beginning or that there is going to be it's going to be a sort of a certain Certain type of poem, especially in the first line, Mm -hmm. and then of course there is a turn, and and then a turn again, and then another turn, and and I guess the poem is trying to sort of sort of navigate these two poles, really between yeah, I mean those two poles again and again. The syntax, I think, was something I I wanted to actually strain a bit, you know. I wanted to sort of, I wanted to keep the the reader awake a little bit, I guess, and and that. Mm -hmm you know, you can do that, I guess, by just using words that will keep the, <laughs> keep the reader awake as well as the, the music and the language. I mean, the music is something else that I really, really had to think about.
0: Okay, so I'd like to pick up on something you said earlier on, which was that the, it was really hard work to get the form right. And I'm curious about this because I know that you are a very skilled and conscious um, poet Around form, the way you think about it, and the way you use it. How how did the form evolve of this poem?
1: So I I think one of the reasons I bought this poem is because I think on paper, uh, uh, you know, the architecture of the poem it looks really quite simple, mm-hmm. and um, you know I'm not using um, conventional form, um, and it's set up is sort of you know it looks like it's in free verse. Of course, it is in free verse, but. But I really struggled with the form. This is this is what I spent most time on because initially when the poem was arising, it came out with loads and loads of rhyme, full rhyme. I mean, there's still lots of assonance mm-hmm. and alliteration. You can see it um, pressed against the glass. Yeah. I suppose I could have pulled up their six stems. We've got perforations and petals. I mean, beds and and, and heads and days and gay you know yes. we've got kind of yeah. lots and lots so but actually um uh the poem started uh, uh, sort of in rhymes and in long couplets and so the original poem was sort of set out in a very different way where there were sort of rhyme endings mm-hmm. and um and i was letting a lot of the lyricism float in and i was allowing those rhymes and there was something about the poem that just felt like really safe and and too 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 beautiful and too Bye. too lyrical and, and especially in in those sort of couplets which sort of you know which you which you often associate with with love and yeah. so i i decided that i wanted to 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 hide and bury some of those rhymes and so that took a long time because i was, i felt like i was having to unstitch <laughs> the poem <laughs> but it also really it felt really important because i think i wanted to have that those counterpoints between and for the reader to to sort of have this experience of, you know, having the lyric, the conventional language up against the uh, having you know slightly off syntax, and then, you know, you can you can see I think when when you hear the poem read that that there, there are lots and lots of rhymes and, and echoes and music in the poem, but I think there you can probably almost feel that there was another. Almost feel that there was a, a, a another form underneath this, but I actually quite like I like the the sound of that. I like the sound of that original form sort of breaking up underneath it. Um, so so there's one particular um rhyme, which is those those poor dazed heads, and then of course that last line in their altar beds, and they were really close together, oh, and so man. I had to go back and find a way of keeping, uh, or even losing poor dazed heads, which I wanted to keep and sort of moving the rhyme back backwards, um, somehow. And so there's a lot of, um, unstitching, a lot of tr- sort of rereading, a lot of listening to the poem again. And, and, um, because as soon as you start undoing the rhymes, um, you know, you, you know you have them in some places and not others I think that you have to be quite consistent if you're going to undo them you just really have to undo them so even when I had a couple of um, end rhymes I needed to sort of I really felt like it was important to undo them completely and hide them Um, but hopefully you can hear that that's I wonder if actually if you can hear the struggle. <laughs> no. You can you can hear the struggle in that a little bit.
0: This is really fascinating for me listening having experienced it on the page and then to hear you read it. And also for for anybody listening if you haven't seen the text yet go and ha- go and have a look at the website a mouthful of air.fm and you will see the way that Mona has laid it out. So she was saying you know the original text had long lines full end rhymes uh, rhymes at the end of a line and um, but what you've got is actually so the lilies were sick is one line and then i was new and wifely is the next one so it it's really short almost like broken looking lines and when you read it i could hear some of those rhymes making a bit of a comeback mm. that they weren't as obvious as when i was reading it on the page and i think the image i've got in the my mind now is now I've got the backstory. It's it's almost like you took the sheet of paper that the poem was on and crumpled it. So we've got all these kind of fractures and words nestling mm-hmm. up. Some have been he- hidden and buried, and others have been juxtaposed. And and the whole thing is it, it's in a different and I think a lot more interesting relationship than the description you've got from the beginning. But I wouldn't I wouldn't have picked up the struggle. You know, when I read no. it, it felt like <laughs> it was very sure-footed and it knew where it was going, even if it was an odd direction with a slightly unusual gait. So it's fascinating to hear how much work went in behind the scenes.
1: Oh, good. Well, I'm, in a way, I'm glad that you didn't see the scaffolding. <laughs> no.
0: no. <laughs> um, that
1: I removed the scaffolding before um, I published it But because um, I, know, I know how hard it is when you see a poem and you think, oh, that's just, you know you know you know there is there is a there is a struggle in making these poems and there's there's things that are that are, are at stake yeah. and and what was at stake for me was that i wanted to make sure that the poem was the po- once the poem had been captured <laughs> and i'd got out of the way of the poem yeah. i think that once you have your editing hat on it's very different from that other part mm-hmm. of writing, which is to do with you know that initial part, which is actually the easy part, easier yeah. part gathering the poem, capturing the poem mm-hmm. it's that end part, it's that sort of last forty percent you know which is form listening ear, 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 and then trying to think about the best way of shaping the poem because of course the poem it it, it sort of is um laid out on the page, it looks like a sort of free verse poem, but it's there are sort of very light sections. To the poem where um you have sticky gob the fly's excrement on one line yes and so i'm making a real meal of meal out of that mm. <laughs> line yeah. and then and then that line they were hard to love back those flowers th- these flowers and again that's syntactically a sort of odd way of saying something quite simple um, they were hard to love back. These flowers is an odd, odd, yes. more odd way of saying something, and and then breaking at that, and then having the sort of other section, like a light, another new sort of light section. Um, I mean, those are all decisions I made, you know, at the end, and they were there. Was I don't know how many versions of this poem, Mark, before it landed, as it, you know, and I and I felt that the poem was was as as good as it can be.
0: Um, and this is yeah this is the, completely the opposite way around to the popular perception of what poets do isn't it that we get this kind of effusion when we're out for a stroll and then we just take it all down and and there's a preciousness again about that first draft that first breath of inspiration but what you're describing is actually it's it's maybe more about patience and sensitivity and and staying with it long enough to allow the poem to come out rather than your initial idea of the poem.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I was taught uh, by Mimi Calvati and, um, and one of the things she really, really um, taught me and which I really try to completely embrace as a philosophy when I'm writing poems is that the ear, you have to be led by the ear. And actually we live in a world where everything is so visual, you know, it's the dominant sense mm-hmm. and it's so difficult to take that away when you're writing, but I think that when you're writing a poem, I think as long as you privilege the ear above everything else, um, and don't even actually think about the architecture, uh, almost close your eyes and 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 uh, see if you can write the poem out in your in your head. <laughs> Sounds odd, but just 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 com- sort of compose the poem as opposed to write the poem is is kind of another way of looking at it. And I think once, you, once you go with the ear, you tend to get the right, you tend to find a way into the poem and the,
0: the poem. Well, thank you, Mona. I think this would be a good point to privilege the ear once more and, and listen to the poem again.
1: <laughs> Pleasure. The lilies by Mona Ashi The lilies were sick. I was new and wifely, a first tiny garden and my favourite flower right by the back door. They had been planted in raised beds, all self-conscious in their outsized whiteness. For weeks they seemed fine, but then I noticed a kind of injury perforations on the petals, and a black, sticky gob, the fly's excrement. I cleaned them up as best I could, but the blight returned. In the dark, with the kitchen lit, they must have peered in, their occultish, hurting faces pressed against the glass. They were hard to love back, these flowers. I gave them nothing else, spared them my gaze those poor, dazed heads. I suppose I could have pulled up their sick stems or poisoned them from the bottle, but I let them live on, beauty-drained in their altar beds.
0: Mona Arshi was born in West London to Punjabi parents. She worked as a human rights lawyer at Liberty before she started writing poetry. Her debut collection, Small Hands, won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection in 2015. Her second collection, Dear Big Gods, was published in April 2019. Both books are published by Liverpool University Press's Pavilion Poetry List. Her poems and interviews have been published in The Times, The Guardian, Granter and The Times of India, as well as on the London Underground. She has judged both the Forward and the T.S. Eliot Prizes for Poetry. She is Honorary Professor at the University of Liverpool. Mona is currently poet-in-residence at the RSPB in Clay Marshes, Norfolk. Her debut novel, Somebody Loves You, was published in 2021 by And Other Stories. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at mouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and Visual Identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by The 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project Grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.